0: specialty story session number 79. Whether you're a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information you need to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Specialty Stories, session number 79. Welcome to the Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray. I am your host here every week where I talk to a physician or in the future we'll have program directors on, we'll have retired physicians, all to give you, the medical student or the pre-med student or even the resident, an idea of what life may look like. As that specialist. Today is no different. We have a great discussion with Dr. Brittany Davidson, a GYN oncologist who's been out of training for three years now, and she's in an academic setting. So we talk all about why she went into GYN oncology, why an academic setting, and so much more. If you're interested in potentially helping us find more great guests for Specialty Stories, shoot an email to team at medicalschoolhq.net with the subject Specialty Stories intern. Let's go ahead and dive into our conversation with Dr. Davidson and find out when she first became interested in OBGYN and GYN oncology.
1: So I had an interest in women's health even when I was in college I took a lot of women's health classes, um, even wrote my thesis about some international women's health topics, so thought that that might be something I was interested in, um, and then made the very classic circuitous path in medical school, trying to figure out, you know, is there something else that I wanted to do besides OB? But really, at the end of the day, loved being in the operating room, loved the people I loved the OBGYNs and, that I worked with. They seemed really happy with their career choice. They were happy at work. Um, they seemed like someone who I wanted to be like. Um, so really after my third year rotation as a medical student was pretty cemented on OBGYN, um, didn't realize I wanted to do GYN oncology until I was a second year resident.
0: What was it about being a second-year resident, seeing uh, Gynonk and then going, oh, that, that looks cool?
1: Yeah, so I feel like I was like a very typical um, OBGYN resident in that I went into it thinking I'm going to deliver babies and bring this joy to the world. It was a very <laughs> positive, uplifting sort of career choice. And I very vividly remember telling my – um my tour guide as an intern that I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I did not want to do oncology because (laughs) that was just depressing. Um, And then I did my first gynecropatia as a second year resident and I had just come back from my honeymoon. So I was dreading it. And um, I came home from a day in clinic and I could not stop talking about these patients and what they had been through and the adversity they experienced and how just an amazing perspective and and just, they were just incredible. And then I did, you know, the next few weeks in the operating room and I just fell in love with the patients and I fell in love with the operating room and I was totally taken by surprise.
0: That's pretty awesome. So I think it, it's funny. I, I did an interview a while ago with a, an oncologist, hematologist, oncologist. Okay. And, and listening to her talk about her specialty, I'm like, wow, like I never knew oncology could be so cool. And I was like, man, I, I wish I would have explored it more. And it sounds like you had a very similar experience where you're like, this is a lot different than I thought it was going to be like.
1: Totally different. You know, you think about oncology and really all you think about is the death and dying and bad news you have to give. But I feel like there's a lot of ways that you can help and even cure. And I've a new definition of, you know, I can't always cure, but I can always heal. And that is something that has really evolved since I was an intern. Um, I didn't really understand that back then. Um, and I think it's a really cool part of my job is that there's always something I can do to help the patient. Even if I can't cure them, I can help relieve a symptom burden, help take a worry off their mind. Um, you know, there's always something. And that's kind of the fun part is figuring out what that something is sometimes.
0: What traits do you think lead to being a good gynecologist?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, you have to like being in the operating room for, for certain. Um, But being a great listener, I feel like a lot of the times the most important information that I get is really by not talking and letting the patient have that time. Um, That's really where I learn kind of what the patient's goals are for their treatment, what's important to them. Um, And with that information, I can help recommend potential treatment options. Um, So I think listening is is an under-recognized, underutilized skill that um, I'm really starting to do more of myself, um, and trying to instill that in the people that I help train.
0: It's so hard. I think the, the data out there shows that physicians interrupt their patients. So like 16 seconds into a conversation or something. So it's, it's hard to listen.
1: It is a really hard skill to do. And, and I, um, I tell the residents and students that I work in that, um, it's, it's really hard to be quiet. Silence is really awkward, but really that's where sometimes the best and most important information um comes through and we don't we don't learn enough about how to communicate as physicians and it's it's something that is um you know it's a skill that's ubiquitous across fields and something that really is important as a GYN oncologist i think yeah
0: it's it's definitely huge and i know where where I am, I, I get to teach at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, and I, I teach that. I teach communication with first and second year students, and we, we practice like just shutting up and listening, and, and even though as a physician, it's like, I only have 15 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever it is, and I need to get these questions, Like if you just listen, they're, they're probably going to tell you a lot of what you're going to ask anyway, so just let them go for a little bit.
1: Exactly, exactly. A lot of the times they provide that information without you having to ask. And the studies have shown that giving them that space actually doesn't extend uh, clinic visits really significantly. So uh, yeah. I don't know. It's a work in progress, but I'm, 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 I'm trying.
0: <laughs> good, good. So as a GYN oncologist, what sorts of patients are coming to see you? What are their diagnoses? What are you treating
1: so as a GYN oncologist, I, I lovingly refer to us as oncologists below the belt. So <laughs> we take care of female reproductive cancers, um, so ovarian, uterine, vulvar, vaginal, cervical cancers, and we also take care of patients that have um, the, the precancer, they're the precursors to those cancers, so we'll see cervical dysplasia or vulvar dysplasia. We are also referrals for uh, difficult or extensive benign GYN surgery, so difficult endometriosis patients, um, very large fibroid uteri. So we do still see some benign gynecology in our practice, um, but really we try and take care of female pelvic cancers, I would say.
0: What's the thought process behind referring the the severe endometriosis in, in those types of patients to you?
1: Well, I think a lot of it stems from the fact that benign OBGYN or general OBGYN practitioners these days are really jack-of-all-trades. They do a little bit of obstetrics. They do a little bit of gynecologic surgery. But a lot of them don't operate enough these days to feel comfortable doing some of these very difficult GYN surgeries, especially um, um, if there's a plan for a minimally invasive surgery, perhaps, or the potential for a minimally invasive surgery. I think there's something to be said for surgeon volume. And so a lot of the Mm -hmm. times they just don't have the volume to feel comfortable trying to do these surgeries
0: makes sense at least they're mm-hmm. self-aware enough to to know that too
1: yeah yeah
0: so Absolutely. A, as a as a surgeon uh, and somebody who's treating a lot of these diagnoses what what percentage of patients are coming to you already diagnosed versus those that you have to diagnose once they come to you
1: that's a great question um hmm i would say probably about 50 50 um, we get a lot of referrals for ovarian masses to help try and triage, you know, is this someone with a high suspicion of cancer or not? Um, we see a lot of patients with precancers of the uterus as well. Um, and then we, you know, unfortunately with ovarian cancer, the vast majority of them are diagnosed with advanced disease. So they have a lot of symptoms. They've got ascites or evidence of uh metastases on imaging. So it kind of goes both ways. Um, we see a little bit of everything.
0: Describe a typical day.
1: Gosh, it depends. So I have the, the joy of being an academic G and oncologist. So I'm fortunate to have some research time. Um, but then my clinical time, um, so when I'm in clinic, I start clinic around 8am. I usually see about 30 patients Again, they run the gamut of diagnoses and as well as ages. A lot of the times my patients are postmenopausal, um, but I do see some younger women, unfortunately, uh, especially for uterine cancers these days. Um, so again, 30 patients in a day clinic-wise, um, and it's never a dull moment because it's always something, each patient is different. You never, just when you feel like you're you know, getting comfortable with one thing, the next patient comes through the door and they've got something totally different. Um, On a surgical day, uh, OR starts at seven. So it's early mornings, those days. Um, And then again, it's never a dull, never a dull moment. I could have a whole day of cancer cases, like an ovarian cancer debulking or a uterine cancer staging. And then then some days I have... um, benign, benign days where I I take care of women who have cervical dysplasia or, you know, a large ovarian mass that ends up not being cancer. So again, it's, it's always something different, which I really enjoy. You, You can't really get bored
0: as as a surgeon the, the typical surgeon mentality is is uh, everything uh, to a hammer looks like a nail and so to a surgeon every 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 patient you see you want to take to the OR but that's always not the case what what percentage of patients that you're seeing for consultation are you actually taking into the OR to to perform surgery or do a, a procedure on
1: so it depends on why they're coming to see me um but i for For my residents who don't go into GYN oncology, that's what I tell them, you know, one of the best things that they can learn from our practice is is when to decide to take someone to the operating room. Because I tell the patients, you know, I love operating, but it's not actually the right thing to do for everyone. And sometimes it can be really hard to make that decision. Um, You know, the easiest ones to decide are you're either too sick or, you know, you're a slam dunk cancer case. But there's a lot of gray area in the middle. And so um, we use a lot of different factors, certainly the, the patient's comorbidities, kind of what the indication is, are there other better ways to get diagnoses. And then we use a lot of, um, I like to use the American College of Surgeons um, surgical risk calculator um, that takes into account several different factors to kind of give me an idea of where a patient is in the spectrum of surgical complications. Um, it helps me counsel a patient better. Um, but I think one of the hardest things to do is actually not go to the operating room. But sometimes that's actually the right answer. Do
0: you have to take a lot of call?
1: I don't. Um, so I'm in a practice of six now seven GYN oncologists. So I'm on call um one in every seven, six to seven weekends, um, which is actually really nice. Um, so on my call week, um, I round on the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, but then I go home. I don't take inpatient call. Um, and the beauty of also being an academic GYN oncologist is that I also work with fellows. And Mm. so they take the patient phone calls, which I know is not typical of every academic, uh, practice, but I do have that bit of a buffer too. So call is really not bad. It's very, uncommon that we get a surgical emergency in the middle of the night.
0: How common is it for be- being a gyn oncologist being subspecialized to do uh, like a general OBGYN week in an academic academic setting?
1: Yeah, so I so as part of my weekend on call, I also am the the attending on call for the week, but just for the gyn oncology service. Okay. Um so and that really just means kind of middle of the night stuff, which fortunately happens rarely. Um, And then here uh, at our institution, I do take one or two nights uh, of benign gynecology call with the residents for ectopic pregnancies or or things like that.
0: Okay, very interesting. Do you feel like you have enough free time for family and life outside of, of the hospital?
1: You know, I think no one will ever say that they have enough. I think it's it's really trying to find the right spot on the work life continuum. I think balance is really a misdomer. um and i'm I'm working towards that and I think I've actually made strides you know I have a a partner who's in medicine I have a one and a half year old daughter um and so there are certainly challenges um and it's there's no right answer for everyone, but I'm definitely cognizant of the fact that it's important and, and, certainly, um, you know, strive to find that spot on the continuum. It's, it's a ever moving target, I will say, yeah. but I, I love my job and feel very fortunate to feel passionate about my career. And so it's, it's, it's an ever moving target.
0: What was your decision algorithm for going into academics versus going out into the community?
1: I love teaching. Even as a resident, um, I really found it rewarding. It was it was fun to, to try and and share my enthusiasm and my passion for OBGYN and for now GYN Oncology. Um, and so even when I was a fellow, that was one of my most favorite parts of my day um, was teaching. and And then the research aspect of it, you know... I initially came into gynonk without a very strong research background and through a series of series of fortunate events have found some really amazing research mentors and really have found a niche and a research passion um, and and that's really where it developed I think Staying in academics keeps me on my toes, both from a data standpoint, but also from a clinical practice. And it's just it's fun to have trainees. I just think it's it's one of the bright spots, one of the many bright spots of my day, is is getting to train these these young budding OBGYNs <laughs> and Nong fellows.
0: Let's talk about that training path. What what does a a medical student who's thinking about uh, OBGYN and then, and then GYN oncology, what, what's the path and, and journey look like for them? So,
1: so an OBGYN residence, uh, residency is four years. Um, and then a GYN oncology fellowship is three years long. Um, there are a few programs that incorporate an extra year of research. So they're four years. and but the majority are three and you start your application as a third year resident. Um, And then you match into your fellowship the October of your chief or last year. So you have to have a little bit of foresight that that's what you want to do. Though there's certainly um, a cohort of residents who don't realize they want to do oncology till much later on in their residency. And we recently had a fellow graduate who was in a similar boat who took some time off um, and then applied for his oncology fellowship.
0: Took some time off to do just do general OBGYN before applying for fellowship.
1: he did a little bit of research um, and was a benign gynecologist because he didn't realize that he wanted to do gynonc um, until his fourth year of residency. And so by then he had kind of missed that boat for going straight through. Um, So while it's um, an atypical pathway, certainly still a feasible one if you realize if you're late to the table in terms of realizing that that's what you want to do.
0: How competitive is Gynonk?
1: Um, it's fairly competitive. Um, you know, I don't know off the top of my head how many spots there are a year recently, but I want to say there's probably about 80 people a year that apply for a Gynonk fellowship and maybe 40 spots. So there's, okay. um, yeah, I, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head.
0: What makes for a competitive applicant?
1: Um, Certainly having some um, research background. It doesn't need to be a strong one, um, but showing some sort of research effort. And I think, you know, everyone, you know, you travel for these interviews um, and really showing a passion and a dedication to these amazing women that we get to take care of. Um, And also, you know, someone who, Gainong Fellowship is hard. The hours are long. Um, and, you know, I think having some degree of resiliency is really important, um, flexibility, um, and then just really a love of the operating room, but also a love of, of learning of, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about is GYN oncologists also give their own chemo, um, which is a whole different ball game compared to surgical oncologists, um, So you kind of have to like to do that kind of medical aspect of it as well. So you have to like a little bit of everything.
0: Once you are a GYN oncologist, are there even more further opportunities to subspecialize?
1: Not formally, not formally. I think within institutions, the practice patterns may be a little bit different. I know at some of the larger cancer centers, um, there are some GYN oncologists that may specialize in one disease process over another. Um, here at our institution, we all, um, all kind of do everything. So there's no formal specialization necessarily, but you know, some people may be more interested in clinical trials. Some people may be more interested in some rare tumors. And you kind of sort that out with your colleagues and your institution, kind of based on what the need is and what your desires are.
0: Do you see any negative bias towards osteopathic physicians?
1: I will say no. Um, having recently completed our fellowship match two months ago, we interviewed um, osteopathic candidates and they were really strong applicants. I think if there, if there was a bias previously, I think that is changing Um, Because they really are some excellent uh, osteopathic candidates out there.
0: Yeah. What do you wish the primary care providers out there knew about GYN oncology to better help their patients and better help you?
1: Um, A, that we exist, (laughs) uh, first of all, because, you know, while in a lot of larger urban centers with academic um, institutions... We may be well known as a field, um, but in some more rural areas, that's not necessarily the case. Um, we know patients with ovarian cancer and uterine cancer do better when they're cared for by GYN oncologists. So, um, you know, getting your patient, if you have a concern, and um, getting them a referral to see us is helpful. Um, and that We're always happy to see, you know, if you have clinical questions or, or, you know, questions about if you're doing pelvic exams and pap smears and and things like that, you know, and you run into a problem, we're always happy to entertain, you know, to help out. Yeah, we're we're here. We're here is really, I think, the important thing because not everyone recognizes that we're here and we're available.
0: What other specialties do you work the closest with?
1: Palliative care by far and away. Um I always joke that if I could do another fellowship, I would do a palliative care fellowship. Um, they help us a lot throughout the entire cancer continuum, um, whether patients are newly diagnosed with a, a large symptom burden or if the patient is getting close to the end of life. Um, they are by far and away um, the closest division I work with. Um, after that, I would say the medical oncologists. Um we see a lot of patients um, for um, uh, with breast cancer who need their ovaries removed as part of their breast cancer treatment, um, and then there is some overlap, especially in some rarer tumors. Um, so we work closely with them as well.
0: Yeah, I think palliative care is one of those uh, amazing fields that is way underutilized, and I had. Uh, BJ Miller, Dr. BJ Miller on my pre-med uh-huh. years podcast a while ago, I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but he's an amazing palliative care physician.
1: It It is underutilized, underappreciated, just the, the work they do is amazing. Um, and it's really unfortunate. Sometimes it's a really hard sell to get my patients to go see the palliative care team. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah just for many, many reasons. You're giving up on, on me,
0: after. right? The, 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 the you're yeah. giving up on me kind of mentality.
1: You think I'm dying. And yep. you're like, no, I think you're suffering because yeah. you're in pain or you're nauseous. Let me help you. Yep. So it usually takes some convincing, um, but we're getting there. We're making slow inroads.
0: Good. What's uh, for... for a physician out there who may get tired of clinical practice, are there any special opportunities for GYN oncologists to to leave clinical practice and do something else?
1: I think there are. Um, you know, certainly pharma- the pharmaceutical industry um, is, you know, an industry that we work closely with as we're trying to develop drugs to cure and treat these cancers. Um, so, you know, I do know um, that people have left the field to go work um, in industry. Um, that's probably the most obvious answer. I'm just thinking, I I, I know I know GYN oncologists who have done palliative care training and now have a component of that and see both women and men as palliative care physicians. So nice. that's also an option. Um You know, there are also some GYN oncologists who have stopped operating and do strictly kind of the the chemo, the medical side of it, and then vice versa, who only operate now and don't do the chemo anymore. So there is some latitude in terms of what your practice looks like.
0: What do you like the most about being a GYN oncologist?
1: I get to take care of these awesome women. I just think that they are the coolest. I mean, they are dealing with some hard stuff, and I feel like I I learned so much from them. Um, and it's really, I mean, I tell them it's a privilege to take care of them, and I mean that as corny as that sounds. Um, they're just really cool, and I always feel like I am learning something new or pushing um, just I'm learning new skills constantly. There's it's never a dull moment. And so I'm constantly adapting and thinking outside of the box and I just think that that's something that not everyone has the opportunity to to work in a field that evolves at such a rapid pace, I would say. Keeps me on my toes.
0: What do you like the least?
1: Charting. <laughs> yeah. I feel it yeah, it's it's a problem. It's my- It is a problem, I think, for most physicians. Yeah. Um, You know, I went into medicine to care for patients and to interact with them, and I just feel like I chart a lot.
0: (laughs) Yeah. How do we fix that?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I don't have the perfect answer. I think, you know, as the electronic medical record evolves, I think having physicians at that table – So that they're involved in making changes that make sense as the Mm -hmm. provider, rather than having you know changes kind of forced upon you. That really feeling like you're having a voice heard. And yeah, it's it's hard. I mean, it's it's. Have you guys? All of my partners. Have you guys played with scribes? We have talked about it, but we have never actually had a scribe. Okay. Um. Yeah. Okay. We haven't had scribes. Yeah. I'm not opposed to it, but we haven't made that leap yet yeah. it's all about trying to find the budget for them. Of course.
0: <laughs> yeah. Looking at the future of GYN oncology, do you see any major changes coming, whether it's new technologies, new treatments, new whatever?
1: Oh, gosh. I feel like the treatment landscape is always changing. Um, that is. Uh, really a blessing because we have new therapeutic options for our patients, but it it keeps you on your toes. Um, we've been fortunate in the last few years to get a few approvals, um, for various cancer, GYN related cancers, which is exciting. Um, and so I think that's probably the biggest change. Um, you know, surgical changes are a little bit slower. Um, but we had a big um, study come out earlier this year that was is potentially practice changing and we're trying to sort through that data right now to figure out how to how to incorporate that into our practice mm-hmm. um, so there, I feel like there's always something new coming down the pipeline which is exciting but you gotta keep keeps you down your toes
0: yeah if you had to do it all again would you still be a GYN oncologist
1: oh my gosh without a doubt yes that is such an easy answer. The one change I would have made is I would have done a palliative care fellowship at, right after doing a and oncology fellowship. Um, yeah, but I would I would do it all over again. It was hard, but it was it, it was I mean, again, I I love my job. I'm very fortunate.
0: It's never too late to, to go back that. to do palliative care.
1: It is never too late. You're right. I just need my husband to finish up his medical training before I uh, decide to do that. Yeah. but I'm not ruling it out, but it's not quite the right time right
0: now. A little bit of a salary dip.
1: Yeah, but it would be worth it. Um, But there may come a time.
0: Good. Any last words of wisdom for the medical student or maybe uh, OBGYN resident who's listening to this thinking about GYN oncology?
1: Yeah. So I think... Some of the feedback I got when I was deciding to do an OBGYN residency and even when I was deciding to do Gynonk, a lot of people um, were kind of negative in terms of, oh, my gosh, you're going to work so hard. Oh, you're going to be on call all the time or even, oh, you're too nice. Um, And what I would say to that is that don't let that feedback deter you that there's really something to be said for loving your job. It doesn't feel like work. You know, those nights where I was on call and had to come in in the middle of the night, you know, yeah, they're tiring. But if you love what you do, then it doesn't feel like work. And I know, again, super dorky, super corny, but it's totally true. You know, dermatologists are wonderful people and they do wonderful things but I am not meant to work nine to five in a dermatology clinic five days a week. That to me would be really boring and I wouldn't find satisfaction and meaning in that. And so, you know, if you find something that you really are excited about, then do it and don't let the naysayers get to you because you know, it, it's, you got to do what you love at the end of the day.
0: All right. There you have it again. Dr. Brittany Davidson, GYN oncologist in an academic setting Hopefully, if you're a pre-med, a medical student, or even a OBGYN resident potentially interested in GYN oncology, our discussion today hopefully has opened some eyes for you and will hopefully open some doors for you in the future as you figure out what you want and you start directing your life towards that goal. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories.